You're listening to the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. Sex and relationship advice you can use tonight. Welcome to the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. I'm your co-host, Brandon Ware, here with my lovely other half, Dr. Jess. Hey, hey, we are joined today by my friend, Wendy Miller. And Wendy and I met working on Playboy TV's Swing. And Wendy is the host of Sex Ed the Musical. The sex is just following you around, I've heard, Wendy. I can't get away from it, no matter how hard I try. So... I think most people know the show Swing, but I'm sure there are listeners who don't. Uh, I always, this is how I describe it, and it's your your baby, so you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it's basically a reality show about a bunch of swingers living in a house, and every weekend we'd bring in a new couple who thought they might want to try swinging, and I'd introduce them to the group, they'd have a little bit of fun overnight, and then I'd come back and do some debriefing, you know, TV therapy with them. Do you think I hit the mark? Did I miss anything? You absolutely, the only thing you missed was a cock ring tossed was one of our favorite uh, <laughs> we need to talk about your podcast yeah. so we met working on playboy you have worked for everyone from you know all the big networks to oprah yeah and now you're still in television production correct that is correct i'm working for another network right now which i don't want to talk about because um it would be very scandalous but uh, suffice it to say, I am still working in mainstream television. Yes, <laughs> yes, and definitely not in anything to do with sex anymore. You're in, you're basically working at the opposite of <laughs> Playboy at TV. The opposite of Playboy TV. One, it's 180 degree different. Uh, by the way, that's one of my favorite things that people get wrong when they say, "Oh, I've completely changed. I did a 360." Well, then you changed wrong. <laughs> so I did a 180, and I'm working at a place that is absolutely no sex whatsoever, and that's totally fine. Um, but I'm still doing my podcast, which is all about sex. And on my podcast, and Jess, you probably, Brandon, you too, you probably encountered this a lot. People want to know, am I normal? What is normal? Am I normal? Is I'm feeling this way. Am I normal? Everybody's sort of judging themselves against this ideal of normal. Do you encounter that a lot? I definitely feel like people want to know what normal is. And that goes without saying sex, money, relationship, kids, vacation, you name it. Yeah, everybody wants to be within the range of normal, but at the top, if that makes sense. Well, I think that a lot of people are worried that their choices, their lifestyle, what they've experienced, you know, what turns them on, whatever is abnormal. And they think that there's maybe something wrong with them. So I decided to do these series of episodes called Undercovers, and I reached out through Facebook, through some friends of mine, and I wanted to interview women I had n- I knew nothing about. And this was like the opposite of Terry Gross. I did no pre-production. I did no pre-interview. I didn't want to talk about where they lived, how they looked, what their jobs were, anything that you use to sort of judge people in advance or categorize them. I wanted to take that off the table. And... Of course, this is a very small sampling. This is not like the Kinsey survey where I've talked to like thousands of people. I actually talked to 10 women and I got their answers from the same series of questions. And I was shocked at how much we all have in common. And so I was hoping that maybe I could share some of that information with you if you guys are interested. Yeah, I love the social experiment, and I'd love to hear the questions you went through and the insights that you gained. Yeah, so I interviewed 10 women, and their average age is 38. So the youngest one was 31, and the oldest was 60. And 
Six of them identify as strictly heterosexual, 100% heterosexual. And four of them are bisexual or fluid, which I thought is pretty interesting because for women, it's, you know, like you could be barsexual, right? It's like every, wo- every woman is two drinks away from being a lesbian, I think is kind of the joke. Um, but for a lot of these women, the women who are sexually fluid or the women who identify as bisexual, half of them, two of them knew it right away, and two of them were just kind of like, oh, yeah, that seems fun, which seems to be much more common with women than it is with guys because of, you know, st- stigmatizing gayness with men and, and all of that it's different with women and it's a lot safer and it's a lot less reckless you know to hook up with a girl doesn't really mean anything but for a guy suddenly you're like oh I'm gay whatever so um, yeah and we need to we need to absolutely bust that right I think so much of this is through the straight male gaze the fantasy that you know women make out for them right but that's that's a whole other story I think we did an episode on you know demystifying male male bisexuality in the past because if we gave men the permission that we gave women in this realm we'd see a lot more men identifying as fluid as well or bisexual as well. I think so, if guys could just admit it and not even really care about it. Also, another thing that I've noticed is I personally believe that straight guys are the next photo mat. No offense, but I think that their insatiable desire to see women hooking up with each other is only going to show women that they can hook up with each other and have a lot of fun and they don't even need men. So, <laughs> They're just going to eliminate themselves. There are certain species now that are just like reproducing without any men, without any males. <laughs> and I think that you guys are photomat. I'm just saying it right now. You might want to cool out on the girl on girl because the more girls who hook up with other women, we're going to be like, oh, that's actually really fun. And I'm not going to get pregnant and, you know, whatever else. So I'm just putting that out there. Very untimely. I think we, I think we should put out a photomat for the Canadian listeners and okay. the international <laughs> listeners. So they were an American chain of photo development drive-through kiosks that obviously no longer exist because yeah, nobody it, develops their film. There's a million things like it. I mean, again, staying in the film thing, it could be Kodak film or be Polaroid, mm-hmm. which actually is having a resurgence. Um, what is something in, in Canada that has sort of vanished that used to be de rigueur? What was, what was a big thing there that has now completely vanished? Positive Canadian U.S. relations. What? <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's go back. Let's go back to Wendy, though. I'm really interested in the in the ten questions that you asked in your undercovers series. Actually, there's a little bit more than ten questions, but I cataloged a few of them where I really saw some commonalities. The first question I asked them is, "What was the first thing you remember learning about sex?" Hmm. And shockingly, most of them learned that if you get pregnant, if you have sex. You will get pregnant, and you will get AIDS, and you will die. So there's wow, a, there's a lot of things connected there. A ton of shame and scare and scare tactics. The first thing they remember learning that it absolutely was scandalous, and if you had sex, you're probably going to get an STI, and you're probably going to die and get pregnant at the same time, once. Hmm. And a lot of this is religious based. A lot of this came from very um, observant religious parents. And so that was something that I thought was really troubling because I didn't really slice and dice this data all the way, but there does seem to be a connection between people who were raised with the most threats about sex also had the higher, higher number of partners. And whether hmm. or not that's a bad thing or a good thing, that doesn't matter. But I did know, notice a correlation between threats and 
more people to have sex with. And it's just like anything else. If you tell your kids all day, whatever you do, don't eat broccoli, do not eat broccoli, don't touch the broccoli, your kids are going to eat tons of broccoli. We talked about this before. It's like the one thing you tell people you can't have, like the white, don't think about the white, white bear, that's all you're going to think about. So if you tell people don't have sex, don't have sex, don't have sex, don't have sex, what's going to happen? Jess, you know this better than anybody. Right. We're just re- reinforcing. You you can't ban thoughts. I was recently on your podcast and we were talking about this and folks should go check out your podcast, of course. Uh, so that's yeah. that's really interesting and, and unsurprising to anyone working in sexuality because we spend so much of our time helping and encouraging and facilitating the relinquishment of sexual shame. So what what else did you learn from these people? I learned that a lot of these women were told by their mothers not to have children and not get pregnant. And I wonder what mm. kind of a message that sends to your daughter. All of these mm. people were mothers, uh, not all these, uh, eight of these, eight of these people had children that were female. And almost all of them were told by their mothers, don't have sex and don't get pregnant. And I wonder mm. if that's creating some sort of problem down the line with people who are afraid to have sex because they think something might happen and 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 also I'm not worthwhile because my mother got pregnant and she's telling me don't get pregnant but my mother got pregnant with me so I wonder if people are, are drawing a connection to that I'm not sure um, yeah I'll- and I, that makes me think about um, generational differences too that you know back then it wasn't really a choice either because of a lack of reproductive you know justice <laughs> and supports and technologies or, birth or because yeah birth yeah or because you just felt you had to have a kid, right? So I don't have a kid. I know, Wendy, you have a, a star kid. I do. An amazing If I could have your kid, I'd take your kid. Is she, <laughs> is she awesome. on the market? Uh, she's not on the market, but she just won a national medal for a novel she wrote. So she, she doesn't talk to me anymore. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm You're just a TV writer. <laughs> <laughs> I'm what else are you working on, Mom? <laughs> Mom, how many of your novels have won a national gold medal? From uh, none. Okay, well, then I don't need to talk to you. I've got to call my agent. <laughs> yeah she's pretty epic but, but I um, do think it's interesting the the pressure that there was on generations before to have kids not that that pressure doesn't exist today because people give me a lot of crap about the fact that I don't have a kid and we want to adopt and the fact that I don't want to have one out my vagina freaks a lot of people out because uh, they think I'm a, an oven but do, do you think there are generational differences do you think that it's maybe different for younger people that they're not being they're not receiving those messages in this in the same way it's absolutely different for younger people than for older people and another thing that I noticed generally generationally is that younger women had fewer me too instances eight of the ten women that I spoke to had me too circumstances and it, you'd be hard-pressed to find any woman basically over 35 right mm-hmm. but and, and some of them were actually full-on sexual assault and all of those women blamed themselves and never went to the police but with the two wow. youngest women the two youngest women 31 and 33 they were both in groups of girls that really protected each other. And they never, it was sort of like the army, no man left behind. So no matter what, they had a game plan going into college, going into clubs, whatever, where they would never take their eyes off each other. And as a result, in this particular instance, and I know that the sexual assault rate in colleges is ridiculous, but in these particular instances, these two women were the only two out of 10 who did not have any history of sexual assault or any sort of non-consent moments. 
And mm. I thought that was very interesting. The older that they were, the more likely they were like to have multiple, multiple sexual assaults or multiple problems and felt that as if they could do nothing about it. And I wonder if that has to do with a, a shift from the private sphere to the public sphere, right? It used to be something that you bore as an individual uh, burden, whereas now it's something that we're, we're talking about more openly. And I, I think it's interesting that they go into spaces with game plans, which right. is great. Yep. And at the same time, can we just please dismantle the systems that require us to go and look out for one another, right? Let's dismantle the systems that make it okay or normalize even some of the the behavior that isn't necessarily assault, but is still harassing and intimidating. Right. It's, and for us guys to get involved to, you know, and, and to stand behind that and to stand behind these these movements and, and support other men willing to speak up. Because I, I, honestly, man, I, I think it's a joke, like how little we do to support. And that's not going to change until the men actually get behind this. It's not going to change. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And so aside from, you know, the, the shame with which they were raised, uh, the rate of uh, assault and harassment, were there any, like, positive findings? You know, um, I think the most positive findings that, I, that a lot of these women came to was that later in life, they all realized their sexual value. And, hmm. you know, you've heard of the orgasm um, it's not the orgasm gap, but there's like the, there's the oral sex imbalance, right? Where mm-hmm. men expect oral sex, and a lot of women feel that there's something wrong with them. And I talked to women who felt, I talked to a woman who felt that because she didn't look like women in magazines, she didn't deserve oral sex. Or a lot of women who just thought, I think I taste bad and I think I smell bad. And I said to them, Did anyone say that to you? And they all said no. But for some reason, they carried that around for years and years until they finally started advocating for their own sexual pleasure. And, and what is it Betty Dotson says? You have to learn how to run the fuck. So these women, with time, finally started to advocate for themselves, every single one of them. And I thought that was spectacular because in the beginning, many of them felt that they were just unworthy to receive pleasure. And that it was they were very presentational with their sex lives and they were just there for the other person's pleasure. And it took on average about 10 years after their first sexual encounter for these women to start feeling that they can advocate for their own pleasure. Now, one girl, after she lost her virginity, and we, I, we shouldn't even use that term, after she had sex for the first time, she sent an email to the guy telling him exactly what he needed to do to give her pleasure. <laughs> How old was, was this she one? She was 16. And she is, she is, uh, she is polyamorous. She has, she has a primary and then she has two sex partners. And she is absolutely the most fascinating case in this case because like just a week after having sex with this boy, she sent him a note saying, here's what I want you to do. And the day that they were supposed to have sex for the first time, she thought it would be fun to open the door totally naked. They were at a friend's house. Parents were out of town. She opened the door totally naked for this guy coming over th- for them to have sex for the first time. And he freaked out. He absolutely <laughs> unraveled, right? Because could you imagine being a 16-year-old boy and your girlfriend opens the door stark naked? And so, but she was, she had a plan. She stuck to it. She had rules. And she was very much about, this is what I need for my pleasure. And this is what is required from you. And her communication skills were so high as a teenager that now she is polyamorous. And she has exceptionally high communication skills because she knew from the very beginning that 
monogamy was not going to work out for her. And her husband and she have all these rules, and they worked it out, and she gets exactly what she wants when she wants it, but that not as a selfish person. She also makes sure that everything is, you know, consensual and fair, whatever. But I was really happy to hear that. Almost all of these women, with time, finally realized, I'm worthy, I deserve pleasure, and it's my time now. And I really loved hearing that. It sounds like all of this is is tied to self worth, not just sexual self worth, but self worth. So how did you know? How did these women find their way? Was there a turning point where they realized that they were worthy, or where they realized that it was time to speak up? It's so interesting. One woman was married to this guy. Um, they were teenagers when they started dating. They got married. Two years into their marriage, he asked if she wanted to have sex. She said no. They went to sleep later that night she woke up in the middle of the night she was not wearing pants and she had semen inside of her and so she confronted her husband and she said what the hell happened and he said i don't know but she realized that he slipped her some sort of drug and he assaulted her in the middle of the night without her consent she stayed with him for another 12 years because she was she felt that she was trapped and I think a lot of people, and I don't mean to, I don't mean to only focus on the negative stuff here because there are a lot of positive things that come out of this. But it took her 12 years to realize that she does not deserve that. She deserves better than that. She left him, is in a second marriage. Once again, and this is weird, everybody who's in a second marriage is in a great second marriage. Some people are in their first marriages, they're fine. But the people who got out of a bad marriage and then remarried are so much happier because they learned how to advocate for what they wanted. The first marriage, they were probably too young. A lot of them got married because they were pregnant or because they were just young and they thought it was a thing to do. But really, it's that second marriage, getting out, spending time with yourself, finding out what you want, finding out that you deserve to have pleasure, you deserve to ask for what you want and to get it, and to find the courage to do that has paid off for all of them. And I was really encouraged by that. You know, I I make the same observations around second marriages that people do seem to have worked a lot out. The data doesn't necessarily reflect what you and I are saying, though. Uh, The divorce rate is higher for second marriages, which surprises me. But I, I, again, think that staying together is not a good measure of a relationship. Just because you haven't got divorced doesn't mean that you're happy. And when you tell a heartbreaking story like that about being drugged and assaulted by the person that is supposed to look out for you and love you the most, it reminds me that we just need to start talking about sex more because I think the silence and the shame around just talking about sex and relationships is what allows these dangerous relationships to exist behind closed doors. So how how do people start speaking up? Like, how did you get these women to open up? Well, I think that a, a part of this, and again, I'm not a sociologist. I'm not Brene Brown. I can't just look at this data. But what I did notice is that most of the women who were in really bad marriages and really bad relationships were raised with very negative education around sex. So the women who just whose parents just kind of left, you know, where did I come from books around the house or Judith Prance novels or whatever, they didn't have as many problems as the people who were raised with no sex education. Now, Jess, this is something you could probably talk about for hours and hours and hours, but there does seem to be a direct correlation between telling women and young girls that sex is terrible and your body is dirty and then them making choices once they become sexually active that continue to reinforce that. 
Yeah, that makes sense. And the data supports that for for all genders. If we don't provide information or if we provide shame-based information or we focus only as uh, on abstinence as their sole option, we see that they are less likely to enact uh, healthy behaviors like setting boundaries or talking about what they want or using condoms or even delaying sex. And then the other really important piece is that comprehensive sex education Talking about sex, including pleasure, does nothing to hasten the onset of sexual activity. When we teach kids about sex, they don't run out and have it because it's a natural inclination that people are drawn to it in, in different ways at varying with varying intensities at different ages. But yeah, I think this is just a reminder that the costs of a lacking sexual health education system are not just felt in your teen years, but persist into your 20s, 30s, 40s, and beyond. Yeah, it, it def- there's definitely a correlation. And that to, that to me just really reinforced how this abstinence and this fear-based sex education is not, it's not helping anyone. It's creating some real problems that are just could last a lifetime. Now, I did actually have some fun questions in here. Um, there's a woman that I interviewed who, and, and I talked to women who had one sexual partner their whole life and another woman who had 145 sexual partners her whole life. And each of these women, you know, each one is fine. But the woman who's had sex with only one partner, um, she dated this guy when she was in high school. They had sex. They got married, blah, blah, blah. She has the probably the healthiest sex life of everyone on this list because she and her husband are communicating constantly. They have sex twice a week. And I asked everyone to create their sexual golden ticket. And this woman said that when she reveals to people that she's only had sex with one man her entire life, she gets reverse slut shamed. Hmm. So everyone is like, what? Only one? Where's the woman who's had 145 partners? I don't think she goes around blasting that, but the woman (laughs) with one partner gets the most, gets a ton of shame, which I thought was very interesting. But back to the thing. So sexual golden ticket. So I asked each of these people to create their fantasy, their sexual fantasy. If you could have anything you want and there will be no repercussions, you won't get in trouble. Nobody's feelings will be hurt. You can create the ultimate sexual fantasy. The woman who's only had sex with one person, with one person, with her husband, all she did was set up what the weather was like. She said, "I want to be, I want to be outside, not on the beach because of the sand. I want to be sunset. It's a spring day. We're having a picnic. I'm with my husband. Basically, sex with you know regular sex with him. That's what I want." I said, "You could have anything, and basically, you know, you just chose like the weatherman report." She said, "Nope, that's what I want." I thought, fantastic. Another person, another person who had a lot of difficulty convincing men to have sex with her until she finally found a pickup line that said, I've never had an orgasm, and then guys would have sex with her. She basically invented that pickup line. Because <laughs> they feel the challenge. Right, they feel the challenge, and, they, and otherwise men were not interested in her uh, for whatever reason. Her, her sexual golden ticket was she wanted to own her own sex club and she'd go there with her second husband and know that everyone there has consented in advance to me being in their sexual scenarios. So she has a sex club and everyone there has already said, yep, you can have sex with us. Yep, you can have sex with me. That's her sexual golden ticket. That's what she wants wow. more than anything. Um, cool. Yeah. Another woman wants to have, th- and this one, uh, I can tell you from per- first person experience, very easy. She wants to have a sensual massage like with a happy ending from another woman. 
I said, well, that's really easy to attain. That's your golden ticket. That's really not that hard. Um, but that's what she wants more than anything. And she identifies as 100% straight. Um, another couple that already has sex two to three times a week, married twice and very happy. She just wants to wake up in a house with no kids, <laughs> have sex all day, be naked, feed her husband, go out to dinner, and then come home and have more sex. Just the whole sex, sex naked and food. That was her entire thing with her husband. Uh, another person wants to go to the Greek Isles and have sex in an infinity pool <laughs> with either her husband or the guy who played Superman, Henry Cavill. Cavill? I don't know what his name. He played Superman. So that's, that, that's her thing. Maybe a three-way with the two of them. Um, oh. Another woman wants to have a threesome with a man and a woman. And I later saw a picture of her. She's quite stunning. And I was like, I can think of 100,000 people right now who would <laughs> <laughs> happily looking for a unicorn who would make that happen. But the rule was it had to be her boyfriend. So, ah. so she, wanted, she wanted to be with a guy and have a unicorn join them. And that was her sexual golden ticket. And to me, it was interesting how many of these things are so completely attainable and others are just kind of maybe a little more a little bit more out there but i mean if you could come up with a sexual golden ticket with with knowing that it wouldn't offend your partner and i don't mean to put you on the spot because i know you're with your partner but would your sexual golden ticket include your partner oh mine would for sure because he carries all the bags to everywhere we go and stuff yeah i mean how's anybody else gonna <laughs> yeah. get involved if no one's carrying the bags yeah i mean like because I, I probably would bring a lot of shoes <laughs> for so. your sexual fantasy would, would require a lot of shoes Probably. Well, and if it's too hot, I am the weatherman that fans her. Yeah. Right? So, I mean, you got to keep temperature on point. Yeah. You know what? One thing that's really important to me, like when we when I think about the emotional underpinnings of sex, is I like to feel safe and comfortable. And I feel really safe and comfortable with you. So, I don't know what part of the sexual part you'd be in, but I'd want you there. <laughs> <laughs> I'd, I'd be there. Hey, everything great? Yeah, rocking it all. Let's keep going. How about you? Um, um, yeah, I want to hear this. Yeah, I don't. I mean, mine probably sounds pretty st stereotypical. Like I think about, you know, perhaps another woman involved. Yeah, I, I actually I know I'm not just saying this because I'm here with Jess, but I do think about you being involved here. Um, I never get a break. Well, you just never get a break. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> You can watch him up with her. We, why are you getting another woman if I still have to do stuff? Do the work. <laughs> I need somebody to carry the bags, man. Oh, you guys have a lot of baggage. You've got to be strong. You know, for two people, they travel pretty lightly. But I think for me, the there's a very stark difference between fantasy and reality because I think fantasy, everything's great. Nobody says something that bothers you. Right. Um, and it's not it's not awkward after where, you know, unless somebody has spelled out the terms of engagement, you know, like how long are we staying after or what are we doing and this and that, um, you know, fantasy is great. It's just like, oh, infinity pool in the Greek Isles and there's somebody else. And then we do our thing. And then I guess in in that particular case, Superman flies away and doesn't <laughs> say anything because he dumb. I don't That's, know. No, you know, you're absolutely right. Superman has to go away. Superman's fine to fuck, but you don't want to marry him. I, I'm thinking. Yeah. I mean, so, I, well, I think there are two different ways that people fantasize. I think some of us fantasize, but we need some sort of grounding to reality to really get into it. Like, I think a lot of really logical, 
um, number type people, like numbers thinkers, tend to think that way. We're like, okay, this is really hot, but there needs to be some grounding to reality to get me off. And then there's some people who are more creative thinkers, more artistic types, who are able to really fantasize uh, beyond the immediate realm. And I, I don't have research to back that up, but I just noticed, and it may even have to do with semantics uh, in terms of, you know, what is a fantasy? Is a fantasy something I actually want to do or is it just something I can dream up? Because I noticed that some people, and Wendy, you may have noticed this in your interviews, that some people have real difficulty even accessing their fantasies. That's and right. And so they're, they're so tied to reality. And that's okay too. Like the unlimited sex partners in a sex club isn't necessarily a hotter fantasy than sex with my husband with a sun, under a sunset. It's all, you know, all relative. And I'm sure that's what you picked up from these conversations. Oh, absolutely. It's all relative. There's no, there's no right answer. There's no wrong answer. And that's what I was just, that's why I was asking all of these questions because I really wanted to find out what people were thinking, you know, at what age they started masturbating at what time, you know, what, who was the first celebrity crush? This is a great question. Uh, Corey Haim from License to Drive was one. And, I'm too uh, young. Someone, uh, Nick Carter from the Backstreet Boys. Some One woman said, I've never had one. Johnny Depp, Patrick Dempsey. Then some boy called Ryder Strong, uh, who was on Boy Meets World, Zach Morris. But my favorite was Zach Morris. Leonard Nimoy. <laughs> nice. Right? <laughs> this woman was really into Star Trek and Vulcans, and so... Leonard Nimoy was her was her thing and maybe it's what he can do with his hands I don't know <laughs> well what was interesting is one of the women had a picture of a heartthrob boy on her on her bedroom wall that she was in love with but then she learned about the she learned she was taught that there's shame associated with sex so from that moment on she would have to go into the closet to change her clothes because she didn't want the poster of the boy on the wall to see her naked Wow. These these messages really, they cut deep. They really do. And they stay with us for so long. I always say that, you know, if we could just start talking about sexual health from multiple perspectives from a young age yep. and from cross-cultural perspectives, you could put people like me out of business. I mean, I, and that's my dream, right? That's right. really like I got into this because I, I was a teacher and I saw the costs of a lacking sexual health education system and the information that you uncovered in your Undercovers series really reflects that. And we have to go, Wendy, but before we let you go, uh, can you please share your sexual golden ticket? Uh, I think my sexual golden ticket and you know, I'm a writer and a producer, so I get granular with details, and sometimes that becomes a boner killer because <laughs> I'll just be like, "Wait a minute, what kind of what kind of furniture? What is that bed? Is that a Herman Miller bed, or is that like I will fucking derail myself with details?" But I do think that my sexual golden ticket, and all due respect to my editor and husband of 30 years, my sexual golden ticket takes place in the late 50s in a very beautiful penthouse apartment. And I am with the fictional characters uh, that played were played by John Hamm and Christina Hendricks in Mad Men, and it is a Ooh. it is a period threesome, not period like menstrual period. And I hook up with both of them for the world's greatest mid-century modern threesome, and uh, my hair looks spectacular the entire time. So I think that is my sexual golden ticket. And you know what? I think I'm just going to change things up and. And uh, my husband shows up and then it becomes a four-way. 
and that is really really fun but uh i'm actually lying he doesn't show up it's a three-way <laughs> with john and Hamm. then he carries your bags home <laughs> well no, and you, then I, I show up and carry everybody's bags I home only, apparently. i only have like four pairs of shoes and i only wear one of them i'm a capsule wardrobe type so all of my all of my clothes could fit in a tote bag so I think <laughs> that would be that would be it for me a mid-century um Charles and Ray Eames, furniture everywhere, somewhere in Manhattan, beautiful penthouse with John Hamm and Christina Hendricks. That's it. In character, so not who they are detail. now. So much more detail. Like I, as soon as you went to nineteen, mid nineteen, you know, like nineteen fifties. Like I'm like, yeah, way more than I would have oh, ever. Oh no, no, I, I have to get granular before I get off. I really do. I have to really. <laughs> Because I will just get distracted. I'll get distracted. It's like, oh, is it grass cloth on the walls? Wait a minute. What's on? I mean, seriously, it's a problem for me. It might be paneling. She's like, I said walnut chairs, not teak. Exactly. Thank you for understanding. I do. I do. I get it. Well, I, I love that. I'm, I'm really fascinated by this series and encourage people to make sure they go check out Sex Ed, the musical podcast, as well as the Undercover series. Thanks so much for chatting with us. Thank you for having me, you guys. I really love the work you do, and I'm so grateful to be uh, friends of yours and to be on your show. Thank you. We, we feel lucky to have you. Uh, folks, thanks so much for tuning in today. Appreciate your ongoing support. Please share, like, subscribe if you are enjoying this, and uh, we'll be back next week with a whole new episode. Thanks so much. You're listening to the Sex with Dr. Jess podcast. Improve your sex life. Improve your life. Improve your life.